I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. And when I went in the room and I was so prepared and I was so like excited for this opportunity, um, she goes, so do, you, are you, so do you speak Hindi fluently? And for some reason, my stupid brain was like, because I absolutely could deliver what the script needed me to deliver. But I was like, well, I wrote, wrote and read it when I was a kid and, you know, I've been brushing up on it with my mom. But, you know, like, it's not something that I've been using on a daily basis for a while. Hello, world, and welcome back to another episode of Thanks for Coming In. I'm your host, Jillian Clare. If this is your first time tuning in, this is the show where I speak to fellow actors about their journey in the industry, and I make them share some audition stories with me. What's been going on, everybody? It's been um, quite a busy time for me. Happy New Year! I haven't talked to you since it's been 2024, so Happy New Year! Welcome to the next level, right? Leveling up in the new year? I think we all are. Um, I Let's see what's going on with me. Um, I start grad school next week. I'm very excited. I don't know how I'm going to do it all, but I'm going to do it all. I will find a way. What else? I start grad school. I I don't know about you. I haven't set resolutions for the year because I feel like resolutions put so much pressure on you to absolutely finish these things or do these things during the new year. I think it's better just to make goals throughout the year. I'd, I've never really quite understood why you have to wait till the start of the year to like change behavior or go after something that you want. I think you should be doing it 24-7. It shouldn't be tied only to like January 1st. 
So I didn't really do resolutions. However, I do think I'm going to create a vision board today for 2024 for funsies and maybe use it as my iPhone background just so that I can see it all the time. I think that might be what I do today with my day off. Um, what else? If you haven't listened to The Case Within yet, all episodes are streaming. And by streaming, I mean available for listening on all podcast platforms. <laughs> so you should listen to that. Um, it was a great show. I was very proud to create it with Jonathan and produce it and, and act in it with so many of my wonderful friends. So check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, enough of me rambling. Let's get to it. Today, I have one of my favorite people on the planet on the show, and that is Sean Sharma. He and I have been working together for the past, gee, almost three years. I can't quite remember when all of this started. We serve on the LA local board together at SAG-AFTRA. He's helped me with a lot of my um, union service and also just understanding the union. He's a fantastic actor, a great member resource, truly, Um, and it's my honor to work with him as much as I do, and it was very cool to hear more about his, you know, acting journey and, and what it's like to be on a show like The Chosen. So it was really cool to have Sean on, and uh, here's our conversation. Enjoy. And welcome to the show, Sean. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello. Um, I am very happy to have you on the show today. Um, You know, it's one of those things where it's like, I feel like we've talked about it for a long time. And then it just hasn't happened because of like strike things and other things. Um, So I'm very excited to actually have you here and talk about all the wonderful things that you do and all the wonderful things you've done. I'm very honored to be here. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, one of the first things I I love to ask all of my guests is a very hard question, (laughs) and it's, what made you want to be an actor? Well, I act for a different reason now than I did when I was getting started, which was in high school. So I was a very bad student in high school Mm. and junior high because of a lot of home strife. And so I never wanted to be home. I was always with friends. I was always trying to self-medicate and heal from what was happening at home. And so I needed to go to summer school between ninth and 10th grade to even graduate from junior high school, even just to go up to the high school. And I had a teacher during summer school that year, which was, was that 1995 or something? Um, And uh, that teacher turned out to be the director for the high school musicals. And so um, the first day that we met was me walking in, being teased, and then grabbing a box of pens and chucking a pen at everybody in the classroom. And he pulls me out into the hallway by my ears and basically <laughs> says, do that again, and you're going back to the ninth grade. And that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And he ended up being a mentor to me. And then I auditioned for the fall musical uh, as a sophomore in high school. And I got cast, which was crazy, not only to get cast, but to get a solo as a sophomore. And so I, uh, that, that was my journey into acting. And so acting in, in high school, I did nine plays and it was all about escaping from life, escaping from my home life when I was that age. And then when I got older, mm-hmm. acting transformed into something I do to escape to something I do that brings me so much joy and variety and kind of mental travel because I've been able to 
I think we as actors get to cheat death in a way because we can experience what it's like to live during other time periods and other places and other worlds. We get to experience glimpses of what it's like to be so many professions and types of human relationships. And so most people only get to see life from one vantage point, and I've gotten a chance to see life from hundreds. And so that to me is what brings me so much joy about acting now is just experiencing the variety of life and going deeper into what those experiences are. Mm, that's so beautiful. I love that. Um, yeah, it's such a it's such an interesting job mm. that we have where we get to be all these people. And I think too, for like me, I I am a person who wants to do so many things all the time. Like I wish I could be a doctor and a lawyer and everything all at once. And acting is truly the only profession I can do that allows me to do everything that I want to do. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I absolutely love what we do. So tell me about, you know, the start of your professional career. What was it like for you? Did you come to LA first? How did you navigate finding your path? Well, I acted in the Twin Cities in Minnesota, where I was born and raised for 10 years doing about 100 on camera projects, but they were all like non-union, uh, like, you know, company training videos and PSAs and regional non-union commercials and print jobs and, and uh, you know, fashion shows and, and just things that you would do in a smaller market, um, just making a few hundred bucks or maybe a couple thousand bucks here and there. Mm -hmm. I did actually get the opportunity to book um, three national union commercials, which is how I ended up joining the union. Um, and so I moved to Los Angeles in 2007. It was just the right time for me in where things were at, where I was kind of a, <clears throat> a bigger fish in a small pond in Minneapolis doing what I was doing and had a little niche carved out for myself. But there wasn't really much film and television work done in Minnesota. And when there was a movie that came into town, it was usually just looking for background and maybe a day player or two, you know, from the local market. And if you're going to look for uh, Minnesotan local talent, because you're shooting in Minnesota for like, authenticity because it's taking place in the iron range or you know the farmland or something you're not probably looking for an east indian man in minnesota to cast for those parts and so it really wasn't like the right place for me to be um yeah. so, so I, that's why we relocated uh, uh in 2007 my girlfriend and i to uh to los angeles and and then i crashed on my one of my best friend's couch for a month and just ended up living on the West side. And uh, within six months, because of mutual friends that I had made in Minnesota, I got a job in casting as a session director for commercial casting directors. And that was such a blessing, such a rare thing. People don't get a chance to do that very often. There's only like a couple hundred people that have done it, even between like New York and Los Angeles. It's such like a niche job. Um, it doesn't really exist on the theatrical side because there's plenty of readers and casting assistants and associates that can help run a session. But on the commercial side, casting directors are constantly looking for people to run their sessions for them while they're busy calling in talent and scheduling the next day and working with the clients and all of that. So I ended up working, um, starting with Joe Blake casting uh, at Ocean Park casting on the west side. And just being at Ocean Park, it, it networked me with Kathy Carlton and um, and uh, just a bunch of the, the casting directors that were on the West Side. Um, and then once you work for someone like Joe, you can work for anybody. So that's when I started spreading kind of across 
the city. And at this point, I think I've worked with over 45 of the top commercial casting directors. And I ran sessions for a decade from 2007 to like 2017, 2018. And, and I stopped when I joined the board of the union because I didn't want to be working for production and casting while I was advocating for actors. And so that, that's when I, and I didn't really need the money at that point, God bless. So that's kind of how I transitioned out of that. But, um, but yeah, so I came here just trying to throw my hat into a larger ring where there was more professional film and television work. And I got a job in the industry that took very good care of me for a decade. And, um, and it's a big reason why I am where I am today. So I'm grateful for it. Sounds like a whirlwind and I love it. <laughs> um, uh, what do you remember? Like what was the first audition or the first thing you booked or um, even maybe like the first, you know, table read that you were at that you were like, yeah, this was the right move. LA was the right move. This was what I was supposed to be doing. <clears throat> yeah. You know, I struggled when I came here because it was almost more dangerous for me to have had on camera experience from Minnesota because I had an overestimation of my ability when I arrived. And there really wasn't any training in Minnesota that could properly prepare me for working in a top tier market like Los Angeles. And um, I even got here and the first thing I did after I joined the union was uh, go to the LA Conservatory at the time and sign up for classes and go to their summer intensive and looking for a great acting class to join in LA. And I looked through you know a dozen different acting schools or studios and I chose my first acting teacher. Um, and so it's not like I didn't value training, but I didn't know what I didn't know about like their, you know, drama, single and multi-camera comedy. I didn't know, you know, I didn't really know how to adapt my craft for like sitcoms versus like, you know, dramatic programs. And so I really struggled. I, I was good enough to get a team within 90 days of being here. I got a full team of a manager, commercial agent, TV and film agent. Um, I mean, personality wise, I, I, you know, came off professional and, and, you know, ready to go and, and hardworking and all of that. But I just struggled and I didn't really start making a living as a performer for six years after I got mm. here, which I make that face. And I know others are still struggling even just to make a living as performers. So I don't mean to be ungrateful, but, you know, we all move here and think, oh, I'm going to, I'm special. I'm going to make it right away, whatever. And you don't think like I was already moving out here later than others at 27. And so for me to hit by my early thirties was just like, wow, like I'm, I've always accomplished my goals and that, that took some time, but I needed to kind of get humbled and go back to the drawing board. So after spinning my wheels for three years, I actually went back and to another on-camera acting class, like specifically for on-camera, not a theater-based scene study class, but like on-camera technique. And that's when things started to really move for me. And my first mm. booking was a show called Greek on ABC Family. It was my first co-star. Yes. And yeah. And it was uh, Alison Silverberg casting that uh, was casting that. And I just remember feeling so amazed that I had a trailer and people were being so nice. It's like one second you feel like you're completely outside the tent and the next second people are just doting on you, asking anything you need, and you've just got a couple of lines on a TV show. So that was such a validating feeling. That same year, 2010, is when I booked my first national union campaign in Los Angeles, which happened mm -hmm. to be a FedEx spot. That's actually a funny audition story in itself where I, they flew me out to Washington State. We shot for a day in Forks, Washington, which is where the Twilight movie series is based because it's got a really cool forest with moss all over it. So it looks like ethereal. 
and uh, made like 130 grand off of that one day's worth of work on that. And that set me up for a couple of years to be able to, you know, start to get health insurance through the union and start to invest in myself and start making little shorts and all of that. So those were my kind of two initial bookings in 2010 that kind of got the ball rolling, but I didn't start working consistently until around 2013. Hmm. You mentioned a little bit about your union service, um, but I definitely want to take a deep dive with you. Mm. I obviously have met you through union service, which is awesome. Um, And you've been like a mentor to me in that aspect and in that world, um, which has been really really helpful for me as somebody who has just gotten into union leadership a couple of years ago. Um, I want to know, one, what made you decide to start in union service at all? And then two, like what made you decide to do a bunch of union work outside of the union? Because <laughs> you do so much. Yeah, thank you. And it's t- it's touching to hear you use the word mentor with me because I see us as peers and, you know, same thing with so many of our wonderful colleagues that we've gotten to know, but I have been involved for a while. So I've kind of got a head start in understanding the organization and the landscape and things like that. And I was already kind of in leadership and networked within that community. So when we discovered you, we were like, oh, this is awesome. Let's reach out to Jillian and, um, And so, you know, but what got me into union service, it was not something I ever seeked out and getting into union leadership was not something I ever had on my radar or had any interest in, you know, this is going to sound maybe weird or bold or something, but I don't really seek out leadership. It just kind of finds me. And I think the reason it finds me is because I just take responsibility for a problem and try to solve it. So what happened in 2015 as I had been writing for Backstage Magazine out in New York for a while, I have like 50 some odd articles up there. And one of them I wrote about a uh, commercial campaign that I booked for the NFL Network, where when I went to the first audition, it was a union job and union audition and all of that. And then when they called uh, me to book me, they said, hey, the clients changed it to a non-union campaign. Would you still be willing to do it? They'll pay you more up front. And I was like, sorry, I'm a union actor. I don't do non-union. So if they want me, they're going to have to change it back to a union job. Otherwise, you know, say la vie. And four hours go by and they call me back and said, hey, the clients want you so bad. They changed it all back around to union so that they can hire you. And we did six spots that ran on every network for like six months. It was like a huge campaign. Um, And so I wrote an article about how we need to stand up for our union, especially in commercials. You've got so much power. If If you're who the clients want, they will move heaven and earth to get you because they need so many chefs in the kitchen to agree on you. They do not want to go back to the drawing board. But more than that, it wasn't me just trying to leverage them. It's just like, no, I had just had a career saving medical treatment that I could not have gotten without health insurance given to me by my union. So I was like, I, I was not even involved in union leadership. I didn't know anything about the union except that it saved my career. And so um, that's kind of what that article that I wrote got the attention of David White at the time, who was the national executive director Mm. of the union. I don't know who brought it to his attention, but somebody did. So he calls me out of the blue and invited me to a meeting at 5757 Wilshire, which is our headquarters building. And that meeting was with the, with some of the staff and member leaders that were involved in the commercial organizing and recapture initiative, the Corey campaign, which was trying to bring more non-union commercial work under the union's contracts. And so because I was so networked in the commercial casting space, they thought I could be helpful to introduce them to casting directors and facilitate, facilitate some discussions. And so I did that. 
And then at those meetings was a friend and mentor of mine, Kevin McCorkle, who invited me to start teaching a commercial class at the LA Conservatory, which is all volunteer work. But I was like, sure, why not? Like I had been running sessions for seven years. I knew everybody like I knew I had value to offer and I don't mind volunteering. I love to meet people and do cool new things. And so, so yeah, I started to teach one class a month at the LA Conservatory. And then in 2016, 2016, they added me to the commercial, sorry, they added me to the conservatory committee in 2016. And as soon as I joined the committee, because I was like, I'm on a union committee at SAG-AFTRA, this is huge. Because, you know, you don't realize, you know, it just feels like this huge prestigious organization. And like, so I wanted to do my best. So I immediately just took it seriously. And I learned everything I possibly could and was talking to our staff and like I went through every closet and took an inventory that hadn't been done in like 40 years of every nut and bolt and camera and SD card and this and that that we had. And over the next few months developed a bunch of new classes and helped clean up the the studio and Kevin and I renovated the studio space and bought 20 grand worth of equipment to make it like a state of the art like casting studio like we would go into at any commercial casting facility and um, and then I, I started realizing hey there's all of these classes but they're kind of like nobody's really teaching audition technique for commercials or TV and film. It's all cold reading. And a lot of it feels, we had a lot of issues back then with bait and switches where it was run so poorly that a lot of times you'd go to take a class and it was just somebody trying to sell you on their private studio classes outside of the Mm. conservatory. And so people couldn't have any faith that if they went, they'd actually learn something. And sometimes people would drive from long distances to, to come. And so we passed a rule that you can't pitch your classes or anything when you're teaching a, a, a class for us at the conservatory. And, and then I developed this whole kind of like class list with qualified teachers that would teach commercial auditioning and TV and film prepared, you know, audition work and all that. And it really rubbed the leaders of the conservatory committee the wrong way because they were responsible for the status quo. And it was my first brush with kind of internal oppression, internal suppression. And it was, and I think what really shocked me is that I was just trying to help. I was taking responsibility. I was just trying to do something useful. It was all volunteer work. I mean, I was just bringing my network into the picture, which is what I had been invited to do by David White when I first got involved. And then these people who felt like I was doing too much, or I was pointing out where their failures were, or not that I was being even negative about how I phrased anything. I was just like, hey, here's a bunch of cool new things we can do that can really solve problems and help people. And it just embarrassed the committee leaders with the staff. And so I got this weird email about how like we were, I was going to present my ideas at a committee meeting, and then they delayed it weirdly, like postponed it, and nobody knew why. And then I was invited to a subcommittee meeting to apologize for having the audacity to put all this stuff together without asking for permission. And like, it ended up being like a meeting that blew up and people were like making fainting sounds and somebody wanted to like punch me in the throat. (laughs) It was like, it was Ilion, who was our local executive director at the time said it was one of the worst meetings she'd ever witnessed because literally I had been brought into this subcommittee meeting and they literally took my documents with my class ideas, with my teacher's ideas, with like the times and dates and all this stuff. And they didn't realize I had already sent it to the staff. So they went in and they removed all of my friends' names, and or not friends, but like the teacher's names, and put in their own friends' names and presented it like it was their idea. So I had to sit through a meeting where they're basically trying to take credit and hijack what I had created. And the staff knew it was stupid too. So at a certain point, I said, listen, like, 
do you realize you're just taking everything that I submitted and the staff already know, like, this is a failure of your leadership that we're in this situation. And that's what blew up the room is when I said, it was like, a, like, I'm just oh, trying to help. Oh my God. I'm like, I'm just trying to help. So after that meeting, like Ilion was convinced they'd remove me from the committee. But what ended up happening is that the, the, one of the co-chairs, Michael Cohen resigned in shame from being from like the whole thing was so embarrassing for him. And, um, Jane Austen stepped into co-chair of the conservatory with Kevin McCorkle at that time, who was the LA president. And over the next year, we completely turned over that committee. We launched so many great new classes. And it was really like the resurgence of the conservatory where over the next like three years, it became one of the most powerful, like beautiful, like tangible services that members could get from their union in Los Angeles. We had 40 classes across 13 different categories and like beautiful, uh, you know, we launched the table reads with the Writers Guild, free self-taping for performers. Like it just started to really flourish. And then I became the co-chair of the conservatory with Kevin in 2019, um, right before we went into the pandemic. So I guess I say that long story to point out that my very first experience getting into union leadership was not something I seeked out. It kind of seeked me out. And then I just wanted to help solve problems and make things better. And I realized that like, if you even just try to take responsibility and solve problems, people are going to come at you and not even because you're trying to do anything wrong or not. I didn't even like express myself in a mean or disrespectful fashion. I was just kind of calling bullshit as I saw it. And like, but in like a very like neutral way. And, um, and so when people kind of ask me why I've taken such a strong stance along the last seven years of my union service and calling out corruption or calling out bad behavior or trying to call out dysfunction or trying to reform things. It, I was baptized by fire when I joined this organization. <laughs> like I, I was always the guy going back to junior high school and high school who was writing for the school paper and calling out the teachers for not turning on the announcements or calling out the students for not like following the rule. Like I've always been like, somebody who's not afraid to speak their mind. And I think probably that's because I've always been one of the few people of color growing up wherever I was, I was always going to be targeted no matter what, like there was no hiding. I just had to get comfortable being a target and I still had to function and, and do my best and speak my mind. I wasn't going to like just not participate because I was different. And so I think that's where I really learned in my formative years that like, there's no hiding for Sean. So I might as well just speak my mind and like, I'm still alive. Nobody's killed me yet over doing my thing. So like, <laughs> you know, like I'm going to keep going. <laughs> it is what it is. Give it time. Give but, it you time. Know, part of, but to finish answering your question, you know, so I've gotten increasingly more involved since then where then staff were like, Hey, you should consider running for the board. And I'm like, why? They're like, well, if you want to make a positive difference and like move money around or try to get more, you know, services for members, you got to be in the room where those decision make makers are and where, where it's happening. So I'm like, okay. And that's when I started learning about the election kind of system and the two political factions in Los Angeles, both reached out to me to run with them in 2017. And so that's when I got kind of the shocking wake up call that we have a division that's pretty brutal in our union. And, and then I ended up writing my first letter to the members and August of 2017 about like, Hey, everybody, there's these parties. It's bad for our union. What's going on? Like, this is not good. Um, and that kind of started putting me on the political radar for people. But, um, I found that a lot of times there were things I wanted to do that the union wasn't able to take on right away. And so 
or it wasn't doing well and I didn't have an ability to like impact it. So I'm like, I'll just do it myself on a grassroots level. And so I started doing a lot of stuff outside of the union, but like to reinforce the union and that eventually once we worked out the kinks, we could bring it under the union in an official way, which is what happened with the table reads, which is what happened with the free self-taping program. Um, and it's now happened with the union literacy guide with the member orientations, completely re overhauling those. Um, and then solidarity is also starting now to be something that, uh, you know, Fran was talking to me about wanting to bring that into the union, which mm. is just nights, you know, one night a week where we all can get together and learn about union stuff together, which isn't a thing inside the union right now, but outside the union, we've been doing it for four years. And it's amazing because it got us through the pandemic, just having companionship every Wednesday night and we learn, and then we like put on silly Snapchat filters and like, like, you know, laugh and talk about whatever to like 11 at night. Um, so we weren't so isolated and we, and a lot of the people who attended solidarity nights over the course of those years have ended up in leadership positions now and on the negotiating committee and in committees and, um, cause union knowledge, you know, knowledge is power. So I kind of was like scattered. I told you a lot of different stuff, but I guess <laughs> my, my, my final statement on all that is like, do what you want to do, just do it within the rules. And like, I never claimed any of my grassroots stuff was officially SAG after stuff. It was all very clearly marked as grassroots and not official stuff. But like, if something doesn't exist within the union yet, like prove it out in an independent way. And then you'll learn so much that you can bring it into the union as a more fully baked, fully functional idea. So a lot of times people are like, why doesn't the union do this or that? It's like, well, why don't you prove it on a, on an individual level first? And then you'll know how it fits into the union structure and the staff will be able to budget for it and devote staff to it. And, you know, they can set up a committee for it. It's like, it just, somebody has to, to lead it. And I think a lot of people are not aware that they can volunteer and get involved. And also sometimes people aren't excited to do a bunch of free work, but <laughs> you know, the way that I see it is when I'm not acting, when I'm not auditioning, when I'm not creating talent or creating content, when I'm not educating, I'm protecting and serving our profession through the union. And I think it's really every actor's opportunity and duty to protect the profession in some way. And once you join the union, you've got a structure where you can do it. So, so there you go. I mean, yeah, I, <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree with everything you just said. Um, you know, it's, it's really easy for people to sit outside the union, right. And, and criticize the people who are, giving their time and volunteering and trying to make the union better um, and being like, well, this doesn't work and this doesn't work. And it's, it's a lot harder to actually stand up and say, Hey, you know what? I'm actually going to give my free time, the limited amount I have to doing this. And then once you're in, you're like, Oh wow, this is a lot. There's a lot more red tape than I thought. This is harder than I thought it was going to be. I mean, the first like two years of, of running the young performers committee here for me and Brandon too, we were like, Whoa, okay. We need to figure out how we can like slice and dice our ideas here so that we can actually do a lot of things and get everything done that we want, but in a manner that is actually going to, you know, help members. And it's, it's so interesting once you're in the union leadership roles of trying to figure out how to do what's best for everyone and change the union a little by making it better. It's just, it's an interesting thing. And so I encourage anybody who's listening, who's like, I wish my union was doing this to literally get on a committee and start trying to do it. 
Yeah, before I got involved in union service, you know, we all do different things to try to build communities for ourselves within the industry. People join acting classes, they join accountability groups, they, you know, try to go to film festivals, or they try to create content and meet people, or they talk to people at auditions, or they, you know, or we meet people on sets or whatever, like we we're constantly trying to find and make new friendships and build community. The union is already this fully formed, like structured organization that is community on steroids. It's right there mm-hmm. for you. And it has a mission to make us successful. Like the, re- the, the union exists to give us an advantage over non-union performers. It exists to like advocate for our value. And as much as I have been one of the biggest critics of our union's leadership at times over the years, I've also been one of the most fierce advocates for unionism because I can see mm-hmm. how much we would be in trouble if we didn't even have the structure that we we have and the strikes that took place this this last year were evidence of that like god bless that we even had a union that could try to try to draw a line in the sand and say no you can't do whatever you want we need to have this this and this and whatever so i absolutely think that every performer and every member should look at the union as a like once you join this kind of labor movement this labor army um you've got you know brothers sisters and siblings at your back that will help you with just about everything you want to do and if you're going to be an actor your whole life anyway or a performer your whole life anyway why not engage with the one organization that is like the nexus (laughs) of it all with our employers and it's really fun because you know, yeah, I may not get paid for my volunteerism, but there's so many resources and cool stuff at our disposal. It's like finding out you belong to a Soho house and you didn't even, didn't even like know you did. And yes. you've got all these cool, like you've got all these rooms and opportunities and resources and things that are just waiting there for you that somebody else took time to set up for you because they care. And you're not even like aware of it doing anything with it. It's like, <laughs> Like it's, it's really, really empowering. My, I can now go on to any set. I can talk to anybody in the industry, whether it's a producer, you know, crew, I, you know, I can talk to anybody who's a member of DGA, WGA, IATSE, Leuna, Teamsters, IBEW, you know, like, like anybody, AF of, I can talk to other union people about really union literate stuff, like about our, our working conditions and about like helping each other succeed and where people are struggling and um, try to solve those problems. And it just, you know, I was on Reddit this morning because I kind of have my morning info dump where I read a bunch of news and everything. And there's the acting channel on Reddit and people ask really interesting questions. Sometimes they're really sad. And, you know, one of them, the, 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 the questions was, you know, people, you know, wanting to give up or people feeling like they're, it's just not working or whatever. And it's like, man, like, you would have such a support network if you were to become empowered and join the union because you're around all these people who have put their money where their mouths are and they're like they're taking action they're go-getters like there's a so i'm so proud and so excited to have you in particular but also so many of the other newer leaders involved because we are changing the organization into one that is going to help as many people succeed in so many cool new ways that we always wish would have existed for us when we were coming up. And so that that brings me a lot of joy. We're going to take a quick commercial break and then we'll be right back. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. 
Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. And back to the show. You also produce things, you're making things, you're a content creator, you have your podcast, Table Read Podcast, which I'm in love with. It's fantastic. Um, But you're also on a hit TV series right now called The Chosen. So you want to talk a little bit about um, what it's like to be a part of such a, I feel like it's a groundbreaking monumental moment for this story. Yeah, it's really surreal. You you never think, you never know what you're going to book that could put you on the map or that could <clears throat> give you kind of the fulfilling experience that we all are seeking when we want to get into this professional side of this industry. And, you know, we all dream of like the our Harry Potters or our Lord of the Rings or our Star Wars or Star Treks or whatever, you know, um, Marvels and DCs and all that. And we ultimately, we want to tell stories that touch people's lives and that, you know, that inspires people to, you know, maybe act themselves, which inspires people to, to, in our show, it's a little different too, because people don't just watch our show to be entertained and to see, you know, wonderful, relatable experiences. People watch The Chosen because they want to maybe get closer to their God or their faith. They look at it and they're mm-hmm. they're looking to see the lessons that they were raised with in school or, you know, in, in Christian families or whatever. And now they have a visual representation of something of like, oh, it could have been like this. Or these people stop just being lines in the Bible, but they start becoming fully fleshed out human beings that are relatable and have their own problems. And they're just like me and whatever. And we've got such a beautifully diverse cast that, you know, our our Jesus on our show is not just a white model like our, you know, our Jesus is actually from the Middle East. And like and so you've got this really cool project that started just as a crowdfunded project. It's not 
it, it didn't come through the network system. It's it didn't come through the mainstream. It it started as the world's largest crowdfunding project of all time. We raised ten million dollars from nineteen thousand individual donors for to shoot season one, and we had to shoot it in two four episode chunks just because the money was not there for us to do the whole season at at one time. And then it grew from there into one of the most watched shows on the planet right now. And we're, we've only got three seasons of our seven seasons out. We're just about to launch our fourth season in movie theaters next month. You can go to your local Cinemark or wherever and what we've got like our shows. Which on like- is also just like so crazy. Like I've never heard of a TV series launching inside movie theaters, but then also being on the CW. Like who does that? <laughs> like, how is that possible? Well, like two seasons ago, they created a Christmas special because, you know, there's long spans between seasons, as we all know, because we love a show and we can't wait for the next season to come out. But because our show is crowdfunded, we really keep trying to keep the community engaged and up to date on what's happening. And also because of this being a show that really you know touches people of faith, because it's even though it's not a religious show, it's not a faith based show. It is a dramatic television series, but because it's about the Gospels and because it doesn't contradict scripture, it often gets kind of seen as like a religious or faith based show. But you don't have Mm -hmm. to be Christian to be on it. You don't have to be Christian to be a crew member on it. Nobody tries to do a test of your faith when you join it. They just want to tell the best story that they can. Um, But so we created a Christmas special and put it in theaters two years ago, and it did like $15 million at the box office. So then the next year, we're like, okay, let's put like the, the first two episodes of season three and the last two episodes of season three in the theaters and just see what happens. And it made another like $15 million. So then this year, we're like, let's put the whole show in the theaters <laughs> and see what happens. And what's cool about our show is because it's independent and all that, like they've had to innovate, like technology-wise, they've had to innovate. We're doing so much cool new stuff. Um, like, so yeah, it's, it's really cool. Cause now I can go watch the show that I am a part of in the movie theaters and see myself on the big screen, which is like a childhood dream come true to be able to go to the movie theater and be like, that's me. And, uh, also celebrate the work of my fellow cast members on, uh, in that kind of a way. It's just so, so neat. So I guess, you know, the show has gotten to the point where, we have our own convention now called Chosen Con, and I got a chance to go out to Dallas to do that a few months ago. And 4,000 of our supporters came out to this hotel, and I got a glimpse of what it's like to be like a recognizable like celebrity actor. It's funny because you're like in the hotel and you can't go anywhere without being mobbed and people wanting to come and talk to you. And it's so touching and awesome. And the way that I see it on our show is like those are my bosses because they've funded the show. So I'm like meeting my bosses, you know. But uh you're in the hotel, you're a star, you leave the hotel, nobody knows who you are, you know, so, <laughs> such a neat little dichotomy. But um, it's such a humbling blessing to be part of something that is so meaningful to so many people and to just even not even be halfway through yet. We've still got three, four more years to go as we do seasons five, six and seven. And then, you know, God only knows what's going to happen after that. So it's, it is so, I guess, here's the last thing I'll say about that. Other, unless you have any other questions, which is just to have a home in a story for seven or eight years is a dream come true. To have that stability that allows me more time to volunteer because of the chosen, I've had time to serve on the negotiating committee, like do even more work that we do for the union because 
I have the privilege of being able to spend the time to do that. And so, mm -hmm. um, so it's just been, you know, validating and amazing. And, and uh, so in so many ways, one of the ways is that, again, I came out here later than a lot of people, I, I didn't really start working until my early 30s. And so for me to finally be on a series, and then have a series like this, it's really shows that, you know, there's always somebody hotter, younger, more fit, this, that, whatever. I've never been like, you know, like carved out of wood or been like, like, you know, I, you can, you can succeed in this industry, no matter what time and part you know, of life you come into it or whatever you look like. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's really, it's great to know that if you do, because one of the things you hear people say is like, people work their butts off and then they feel like they don't get anywhere or something. It's like, no, like you can really, if you, if you work your butt off in this industry and you do things right, like there's a place for you. And it's just, there's a reason why the same people work all the time. There's a reason, you know, one of the interesting things, Jillian, is when we did an analysis of who qualified for plan one and plan two health insurance in the union, this was back before when there were two plans. Now there's only one plan, but before we used to have plan one where you had to earn like 35 grand a year to qualify for that. And then plan two was like 18 grand a year to qualify for that. And what we found is the people who earned enough to qualify for plan one, they didn't fall out of it very frequently. Um, there was much more churn between people who qualified for plan two and didn't, you know, but people who are in plan one tended to stay there. So there was something that the people who are already working were doing that kept them there. And mm -hmm. over my years of teaching and all of that, I've really found that, um, that there's a reason why there's something that some performers do to work at a level where people just need to work with them. People just need to hire them. And, um, and so I've, it's, it's gratifying for me to know that my hard work paid off in that way to this point. Epic. And everybody <laughs> should be watching the chosen. Um, there's that. Oh, on the well, table on read the show... podcast side, on the table read oh, podcast side, you were part yes. of one of those and we're getting mm -hmm. a quarter million downloads a month now. And by the end of 2024, we're on pace for us to be able to like, you know, cause every performer on it gets to share in the revenue from the advertising. So I'm mm -hmm. really excited to say that probably by the end of 2024, being, having been on our podcast will bring you as much in residuals as shooting a network co-star. Which is awesome. <laughs> and it's pension and Thank health. Thank you, Table Read. Yeah, and it's pension and health contributing income because it's a union Table Read podcast. Like we're a signatory to the independent podcast agreement. Do you want to talk a little bit about Table Read and like how that became a thing? Because you've done other Table Read stuff outside of just the podcast too that I've been a part of, which has been really fun. Well, we're but... started. In, in 2017, yeah. when I was sitting around with Kevin McCorkle at the conservatory and we're like, you know, it feels like we're so siloed off from each other, from writers, from directors, from studio people, from casting people, like we all are in our own little silos. And even when you are able to join something like the Television Academy, and you join a peer group, you're like stuck within your performer peer group or director's peer group or writer peer group. And it's like, the only time you mingle is at the screenings or the whatever. It's like, no, you would think that we need to integrate with each other. We need to meet other really great people. I don't want to have to like just go to a screenings or join the Soho house or whatever. Like I want to have real meaningful opportunities to network. So we're mm -hmm. like, well, how do you network with casting and directors and writers? We're like, well, we all do table reads all the time as part of the production process or 
you know, helping a friend who's writing a script or something. But what if we did table reads for Writers Guild writers? We'll we'll just like bring their script to life in an afternoon and it'll be cool for us to meet our WGA writer. It'll be cool for them to see the actors. And that started in November of 2017, just up at the American Film Institute. And it snowballed into six years later, having done about 220 table reads. And we partnered initially with The Blacklist and then with Coverfly. And then the Writers Guild had an internal process that started feeding us scripts. And then we were able to bring it within the union to do them through the LA Conservatory. And now it's a program of the LA Local. But the whole idea was, and and it's cast now by Teamsters casting directors. So we have you know, casting directors casting it. We have our members participating in it and Writers Guild members writing it. And the writers are the only one that can bring guests. And so they often bring literary agents or their managers mm-hmm. or their writing partners or producers or directors who are interested in their project. And so here we are spending four hours in an afternoon with a casting per- per- person, a writer, director, producer, this incredible cast, and we're all celebrating a story. And the way that we wanted to make it even more unforgettable for the, the, the writers was we, especially before the pandemic, we went all out with, we had table tents and we pre-highlighted everybody's scripts for them and created custom cover art and had props from the prop, the hand prop room or professional prop houses there that bring the world to life. And we would light the room and we would have a custom trailer on the flat screens and we would have music inspired by the script. We would have food inspired by the script. And so the writer would come in to essentially like a themed surprise birthday party of their script and they would not know how to process it because it was all free for them there was no money it was all like just meant to make their day and so they would come into this room you have this amazing cast that's like read the script so it's not a a cold read and and then after the reading is over we've been have a discussion that was led by the writer so that they could get out of it whatever they wanted to get out of it and it just ended up being so addicting and so fun both to make a positive impact on the writer but also to spend an afternoon with other actors reading a film script from start to finish because so often we're just reading scenes from a script when we're auditioning and we don't get to have the full story experience and and even when you're filming a film you're shooting out a sequence a lot of times so you don't get to have that full like you know through experience um and then you're networking with all these incredible people in the best possible way just like loving and discussing a story so um, from doing all of those, all of those years, eventually my friend Jack Levy, who uh, is a supervising sound editor and won an Emmy for his work on Battlestar Galactica, like he is the post-production sound guy. He's like, why don't we bring some of our favorite scripts into a studio, record it, and then I'll do all the post-production audio work on it. So, you know, sound, you know, you know sound effects and music and whatever. And now you listen to it. It sounds like a movie. It sounds incredible. Yeah. But because it's a table read, you also hear people make mistakes. We hear us giggling, all that stuff. It has kind of like a best of both worlds. It's like a, we're all professionals, but we're not taking ourselves so seriously because it's just a table read. We're celebrating when we flub or when something silly happens or whatever. <laughs> and it almost brings the audience into the room with us so that it's like fun and it's entertaining and it's a great story and it's great performances, but it's not super serious and formal. So it's like accessible in a way. And it's just really resonated with audience members. And so it's been growing a ton. And so I'm just really excited that we can now bring some of these scripts that we love to a wider audience. And if and the way the podcast is structured is everybody wins if the script wins. So if the script is sold, we all get paid session fees for our recording. If the 
if it generates money from revenue for advertising, then we all get to share in that. So it's kind of an all for one, one for all type of thing. And it's amazing to boot. So like everybody should be listening to it because it's, you know, it's, it's cool to have a show that is almost, you know, anthological like where it's like, you're not listening to the same story over and over again. Um, You have different takes too. And it's not just one genre. Like you had the Renaissance um, fair (laughs) script with the aliens, which was so fun. And then you went to the one that we did, which was little man. And it's like this raunchy story about a little kid who like, just shouldn't be it's so funny (laughs) and like so so wrong i loved it um yeah you did one of our favorite ones which was actually written by a filipina american and it's won like awards you know from from (laughs) festivals and stuff and yeah about a a douchebag who gets turned into an eight-year-old and then has to be a good person (laughs) to get back into his 30-year-old body And just listening to the little boy who played the the lead role of Doug was just so funny and also like, oh my God, I can't believe you're saying this. You know what's so funny about that is like, so in the script, it's got really adult language, as you know, <laughs> and the, 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 his parent uh, pulled me aside and said, hey, I need to talk to you about something. I'm like, oh no, it's, but I'm like, it can't be about the, the language because she read the script before they signed up to do it. She's like, my son didn't know Santa Claus wasn't real before this script. Oh, no. So it wasn't the adult language. It was that we ruined Santa for this, like, eight-year-old kid who was awesome. Oh, <laughs> so, oh no. That's now, so sad. Have, when we read scripts with children, we have to give the parents a heads up if it, like, will ruin Christmas or something. Yeah. Or oh, God. That's so horrible. Oh, <laughs> How sad. Um, anyway, yeah, it's a it's a great show, and I hope everybody who's listening now will listen to it if they haven't already. Um, but the last thing I'm going to ask you is, um, on the show, we like to share bad audition stories. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe something ridiculous that happened in the room. Or it can be, like, the one that got away, the one that you were super close to getting that you were like, oh, that would have changed my life. Um, or it can be just a funny story. We've had... I mean, every performer has those those stories and because any one job you book could be the one that could have changed everything. Because even though know, you book mm-hmm. a co-star, it turns into a recurring, it turns into a guest. And before you know it, you're a series regular. Like, So you really can't judge any opportunity. Everyone could be the one. But mm-hmm. one that came to my mind was there's a, a show that turned out to not do so well called Away with Hilary Swank about like astronauts going to Mars. And I remember when I got the audition for it, it was to be like an astronaut from India that's part of this international crew that's going to go to Mars. And, you know, I worked it like I work anything. Like it was a really great four scenes that I had to prepare and um, I worked my butt off on it. And there were there was a scene where I, I had to call India from an iPad or something in space to talk with like citizens of India in Hindi. And I wrote and spoke Hindi as a child, but I hadn't brushed up on it in a while. And it just happened to be that my mom was in town visiting when I had that audition. And so she helped me brush up on my Hindi for that uh, that scene. And I worked it with like three different people. And so that I was super, super ready when I went in, worked it out on camera, the whole thing. But it was an in-person audition. And when I went in the room and I was so prepared and I was so like excited for this opportunity, 
Um, she goes, so do, you, are, so do you speak Hindi fluently? And for some reason, my stupid brain was like, because I absolutely could deliver what the script needed me to deliver. But I was like, well, I wrote, wrote and read it when I was a kid. And, you know, I've been brushing up on it with my mom. But, you know, like, it's not something that I've been using on a daily basis for a while. And you could just see that's all she needed to hear to be like, nope. Next. And so she's like, all right, we're only going to do the first scene or something. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I prepared all of this stuff. I'm so ready. This is such a good fit. Like, I just need, just let me fucking get it out. But like, I, I don't know if I can swear on your podcast. I apologize. You can. You're good. <laughs> I, was <just> like, <laughs> I was just like, you know, and I felt so stupid for volunteering that information that was not like it wasn't like i'd be lying and being like oh yeah i can totally mm -hmm. do this but i'm lying no i could do what the script needed me to do it's just that i was wanting to be like super honest or i don't know but like just just her hearing that i wasn't a fluent speaker today like on a regular basis was all she needed to like discount it in her mind and then i remember driving home and calling my agent and being like can we call her and say like, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, nah, man, just let it go. It is what it is. Like, you know, so that was one that was like painful. I mean, I'm not somebody who gets attached to roles I audition for almost ever. Like I am like water under the bridge, water under the bridge. I'll get the next one. I'll get the next one, whatever. So I don't really put, I don't have huge highs or lows when it comes to auditioning. But if I make a stupid mistake like that, <laughs> that bothers me because that was like, that was an unnecessary, unforced error on my part to do that. Yeah. Just say yes. Just always say yes. I <laughs> yep, so I can do it. Prepping that stuff. That's right. Just say yes. Just, just say yes. <laughs> it's like, um, it's Andrew Garfield with Tick, Tick, Boom. He, somebody had asked him if he sang because they wanted to, like, tell Lin-Manuel Miranda that Andrew Garfield would be the perfect Jonathan Larson. Uh -huh. And he was like, Sure, yeah, I sing. He did not sing. He had then had to go spend months like learning how to sing so that he could do the role. But it's like, yeah, I I can do that. I'll then learn it. I know. Yeah, when so one of the fun things I had the opportunity to do and I have the opportunity to do at the LA Conservatory is to bring in kind of guest instructors and I would call like, you know, the craziest people like Tom Cruise and Meryl Streep and blah 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 and be like, Hey, would you be willing to come into the LA Conservatory and teach or something? And obviously, I didn't call them. I called their agent or their manager, or their PR person, or something like that. Um, but when you have the title co-chair of the LA Conservatory, like people return your phone calls, which is cool. Mm -hmm. They don't have to know it's a volunteer job. That you know. Whatever. <laughs> but so we got you know Brian Cranston to come in and spend an evening with me and like fourteen other performers at AFI mm -hmm. and a bunch of other crazy awesome performers as well. But the reason I think of that is because I read his book, A Life in Parts, which I have on that bookshelf over there. Mm -hmm. And in it, he talks about lying during a commercial audition about being able to rock climb. And then he got the <laughs> call back. And so he like hired a, a rock climbing instructor and learned how to rock climb in time for the callback. And then it turned out that when he booked the job that he had to do and shoot the job exactly where he had hired the guy to teach him how to rock climb. So it all oh went out fine. But like <laughs> when he was in person, I'm like, you shouldn't lie about what you can and can't do in a commercial audition. It worked out for you in that case. But so I guess I just like, I have that piece of me where I'm like, no, I have to tell the total complete truth unnecessarily <laughs> all the time.
Dumb. Well, what's frustrating about your story is like you do know Hindi. I, do, like, I totally do you it. You can just do it. Oh man, and and you know, and it, but it, and and I laugh about how well you know the reason season one of Away didn't work better is because I just didn't have the right character for that Indian guy. You yeah. know, like who knows? Yeah, <laughs> it made the whole difference. Hundred percent. All because um, a show destroyed by one moment of too much honesty. <laughs> It is all of your fault. It's all um, my fault. Yeah, I I expect the writers to be calling you any day now <laughs> and saying, "Sean, why did you do this?" I know you yeah. tanked us. Yep, as if I don't have enough people <laughs> telling me I think the world revolves around me. You know, there's that story. <laughs> That's a whole another story. That's whole a whole other day. Yeah. Um, well, it's been a pleasure having you on. Is there any final words that you have for maybe the young actor listening to the show right now? Yeah, I guess I would just say um, everybody who's listening to this should just be so proud to support someone like you who stepped up to protect the community and not just with your leadership um, in the boardrooms, but on the committees, but also out there putting your body on the streets to protect our members during the strike as a strike captain. Like you exemplify, you know, passion and commitment and intelligence and class and calmness and sober judgment. And like, so I really... I'm I'm so pleased for everybody who's listening to this podcast that they're being influenced by you. And I hope that they all sop up as much information from you as they all can. And then anybody else, uh, you know, who's listening to this, just if you're a performer, you just have to know that you can do it. There's no question in my mind that you can do it. It's a lot of hard work, but if you do it right, it doesn't have to be a struggle. It can actually be really fun like playing a video game. And when you don't get something, it's like, okay, what do I need to change and adapt so that I can pass this level and get onto the next level? It doesn't have to be, you know, painful. It can actually be like, just like a puzzle, like something that you're trying, like a, mm-hmm. like an interesting challenge. And you don't know what form your career is going to take and how you're going to reach your success. So just be open and fun and playful and awesome. And, uh, and I just really appreciate you thinking of me to bring you on or to bring me on to be a guest. Always. And um, how can people follow you on social media to keep up with all of your fantastic stuff? My name is so unique. It's easy to find me on everything. Just look Sean Sharma <laughs> up and it's I'm the easiest person to find. Perfect. Well, it's been a pleasure and um, I'm very happy we are finally able to do this and get you on the show me and too. let people hear your brilliance. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's very kind. Thanks again to Sean for coming on the show and um, unleashing all his wisdom. That man is full of it. So check out his Instagram. He's always posting things on there about uh, union stuff as well as his own personal work, which is great. And if you've never come to Solidarity, you should come to Solidarity Nights. It's solidarity.us. Check it out. Come hang out with us. You'll learn about the union. And uh, it's also a good place. Their website is epic um, to learning about union literacy and like your contracts and all of the stuff that um, you may not fully know. So check out solidarity.us. Come to the meetings. And I don't know that I'll be back next week. I might be moving to biweekly here. Um, I have a pretty wild job right now, so we'll see. But until next time, thanks for coming in.
Starring Sunita Mani and Alexandra Ship, the New Realm podcast, The Co-Founder, follows two young women of color in the cutthroat world of Silicon Valley and the hijinks and hilarity that come with it. Valerie and Juliet are best friends and business partners whose video game startup is on the verge of failure. Between running out of capital and being belittled during their fundraising meetings, how are they supposed to gaslight, gatekeep, and girl boss? I mean, live, laugh, love in these conditions. Enter their plan for a fake third co-founder, a white dude, of course, to help them raise the money they need. But when he starts scheming to take over their company, they'll break all the rules to save it. The co-founder is full of snarky banter, friendship goals, and twists that just keep leveling up the story. Be sure to listen to The Co-Founder wherever you get your podcasts or visit realm.fm for more information.